I'm a really big fan of stories that remind you that everyday heroes still exist. And I heard one of those stories a couple weeks ago. It was about a lady who found a dog. And this dog, he just looked like he was very unkept. And he looked like he'd been through a really hard time, but she had compassion for the dog. And she brought the dog into her house and she wanted to find out who the dog belonged to. And so she gave him up, she was bathing him and she took a picture and she posted it on social media because, you know, that's a really easy way now to find out things that we need information on. And so she posted a picture and she said, I found this dog in our neighborhood and I was wondering if anybody had any insight into who this dog might belong to. But also I'm having some problems with the dog because he looks different. He looks kind of almost sickly and he's very irritable. And so if someone knows who owns this dog, please let me know. And also if you know something that I could do to maybe help calm the dog down because he's being very aggressive with me, I could really use the help. So again, thanks to the wonder of social media, people came to the rescue to help this lady. And they said things like the one particular comment I thought was very important. Someone said, oh, sweet mercy woman, that's a coyote. You need to get it out of your bathroom and out of the house before it heats your face. And while she was very well-meaning, we could probably mark this up in the fail column for this lady. While she thought she was doing something really good, what she in fact did was endanger herself and anyone who was in the house because she wasn't quite sure what she had on her hands. And all of us, no matter how well-meaning we may be from time to time, fail. Failure is in our blood. We are prone to messing up. Sometimes that's in a small way. Sometimes that's in a pretty spectacular way. But we're especially prone to spiritual failure. Even the Apostle Paul pointed that out. Paul was this amazing man of God who lived everything that he preached, and he was a missionary and a church planter and a theologian and an encourager of the church. And even that guy who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament wrote down that he struggled with not being able to do the things that he knew to be true and to be right. And he found himself constantly doing the things that he didn't want to do and the things that were wrong. Paul confessed that he was a man caught up in a cycle of failure because of his sin and because of his brokenness. But this isn't new to us, and it wasn't new to Paul. Failure has been a problem since the very beginning. And it's one of the themes of God's big story that as long as there have been people, people have failed. But on the other side of that, we're reminded that as long as there have been people who failed, there has been a God who has been faithful and has not failed even once. And so we're going to look on the heels of seeing the themes like creation and calling and covenant, these amazing themes that show how God is working and using humanity to help write his story and to bring redemption and salvation into the world. Today, we're going to look at a theme that reminds us that, as Lydia just said, we don't have the answer. But it also reminds us that God does. And we're going to see during this whole portion of scripture in the Old Testament as people failed over and over and over again, God had a plan 
to one day bring about someone who never would. And that God's big story was leading to a point where God was going to send Jesus into the world, a man who was without sin, even though he was tempted in every way that we were, to give his people, as broken and failed as we are, the opportunity to have hope that one day there will be a time when failure and brokenness and sin are relics from the past that don't exist anymore in God's good creation. And so we're going to go through several stories of failure inside of the Old Testament today. But I wanted to read from the book of Judges, chapter 21, verse 25, that I believe might be the most concise explanation of our failure and sin inside of all of Scripture. And this comes in the midst of a very difficult time in the life of the people of Israel. And it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Father, we do thank you for your word. And we also thank you for your faithfulness. And as we're going to see your patience and your gentleness and your kindness and all these things that you lavish on us when we come up short time and time again. God, help us to find some comfort in knowing that we are not alone when we feel like we can't do anything right. But also, God, help us to find the hope in knowing that Jesus did. And because of that, we don't have to. Remind us of the truth of the gospel that simply by believing in Christ and trusting in Jesus for salvation, he takes all of our failures on himself and gives us his victory. So be with us and speak to us as we run through so many of these stories in the Old Testament and help point our minds to the goodness of of the story that you're still writing, that one day you will finish when all of the failures and all the struggles and all the brokenness will be put away and we will be with you with Christ forever in victory and in perfection. And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. In the Old Testament, we first see a series of failure that stretches from the Garden of Eden to the Promised Land. And the pattern of failure begins in the middle of a garden of life. In Genesis chapter 2, we see God shape this perfect place and put his people inside of it. And they had everything that they needed. They had everything that they could ever want, everything that they could ever desire. They were lacking in nothing. And yet still, as we know, in Genesis chapter 3, everything changes. Because these people that God created and God called and God even covenanted with and gave them this responsibility to care for this garden and gave them all that they ever needed, decided that they wanted something more. And Genesis 3 says that Eve looked at this fruit that they were supposed to not eat. The only limitation to everything that they had, the one thing God told them not to do, she looks at this fruit and she sees that it just looks really good. And then on the other side of that, that she might have something that she doesn't have already. She might be like God, knowing everything. And she takes and eats, and she hands it to her husband, who's just kind of hanging out, watching in the back. It's kind of a weird part of the story. He's just there, and then she's like, here you go. And he eats it, and then all of a sudden everything changes, and we see the pattern of failure begin inside of Scripture. That from the very beginning... Failure is part of our story. 
And so you have these two people in this perfect garden who now are no longer able to stay there. And Genesis chapter 3 ends with this tragic picture of God evicting Adam and Eve out of the garden, out of his grace, out of the place that he had created for them, never to be able to turn back and come back in. And then the pattern of failure kept rolling. Last week we looked at covenants God made with three men. We saw God make a covenant with Noah. And after the floodwaters and all the things that happened in the story of Noah that we looked at last week, we saw Noah get off the boat and build an altar and offer a sacrifice to God. And God makes a promise to Noah. He says, I'm never going to destroy the world like this again, that you can have a promise of my protection and my salvation. And we saw Noah as a picture of God's deliverance. And in a couple weeks... We're going to talk about redemption and deliverance and see Noah as that picture again. But not long after Noah's act of faithfulness of building the boat and offering these sacrifices, we see Noah in a picture of complete and total shame. The Bible says that Noah had way too much to drink, and he's in his tent, and he's just laid out naked in a way that is really disgraceful and awful. And his children walk in, and they see him, and they try to cover him up. But when he finds out what happened because of his pride and all these things, Noah lashes out at his youngest son and curses him. And we see just the brokenness that lives inside of this man who was considered the most righteous man in all the world. Even Noah had the ability and the propensity to fail. Remember Abraham. God made a covenant with Abraham promising him that he was going to make him into a mighty nation. And that his people, his descendants, were going to be a blessing to the whole world. And remember last week we talked about the fact that at the beginning, Abraham didn't really believe it. He said, listen, I'm really old and my wife is really old and this isn't going to work. We don't have kids yet. And so Abraham decided that maybe God was out of his league here. And so Abraham says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to help God out. And so Abraham has an affair with his maidservant, and she brings forth a child named Ishmael. And he thought, this is how I'm going to fix God's problem. As we know, of course, it was a failure. God knew what he was going to do. And so Abraham stepped out of the bonds of his marriage and betrayed not only his wife, but God's covenant because he didn't believe. And Abraham failed. Moses. Moses saw God in a way that was different than anybody else that had ever lived. And so if there was anybody who should be able to not fail, it would have been Moses. And so Moses is in the presence of God. He actually gets to see part of who God is. God gives him the law and the commandments. He's seen God provide in amazing and miraculous ways. And as Moses is leading the people to the promised land, they get thirsty. And God says, listen, I'm going to do something pretty cool. I'm going to show them my power. And so you just go over there and you talk to that rock. And water is going to come out and they can drink. And they'll know I'm with them. But Moses goes over and instead of speaking to the rock, he hits it with his stick, which seems like kind of a weird change of plans. But that's what he does. And it kind of helps draw some attention more to Moses, I would imagine. And out of anger, because God told him to do something very specifically, we see Moses fail. And because of that, 
Moses, the man who led God's people out of Egypt, the man who led God's people across the Red Sea, the man who led them through the wilderness for 40 years, now all of a sudden God says, because you didn't trust me enough, you don't get to go into the promised land. You can come up here on this hill and you can look at it, but Joshua is going to lead the people in, not you. Because Moses failed. And we could look at several other stories from Eden to the Jordan River and see that as long as there have been people, there has been failure. In fact, the entire congregation of Israel, as they're standing on the other side of the Jordan, planning on going and taking the land that God has given them, they sent some spies who came back and 10 of those spies said, yo, we can't do this. It doesn't matter that God took over the most powerful nation in the world and rescued us out of it. It doesn't matter that God has provided for us over and over and over again. I think we finally found something that God couldn't do, and their fear caused them to almost miss out on the good promise that God gave them. As long as there have been people, there's been failure. We come from a long line of sinners and stragglers who take God's good gifts and just shatter them on the ground. But it didn't stop there, because eventually Joshua rallies the people up, and they're renewed with strength, and Joshua and Caleb promised the people, they said, no, God is going to lead us and give us the victory. He's given us this land. Let's go in and trust in God, and sure enough, that's what they do. God opens the Jordan River, and they walk across, and they enter into the promised land, and God provides for them, and they see conquest after conquest, and now they are eating food in the land that God had promised them some 400 years earlier. And then Joshua gives a speech, and it's a really good one. It's one of my favorite speeches. He stands in front of the people And he says, you can choose today who you're going to serve, but as for me and my house, we're going to serve God. And the people say, yeah, we want to do that too. That's amazing. They were so excited. I'm sure they were louder than that, but I don't, I mean, it's still pretty early. I don't want to shock you guys by screaming. And so they were really excited about it. And they all made that covenant that we are going to serve God because look at all that God has done for us. Look at all the places that God has brought us. It's such an amazing thing that God has done. Why would we want to look anywhere else? There's nowhere else that we could go. And so it looks like finally the people have a fresh start. They're in the promised land. All of that junk is in their past behind them. And so now they're going to live their lives in success and in worshiping God and trusting God. No, that's not what happened. Then the book of Judges came and things got really weird. The book of Judges is a book that tells the story of seven cycles of complete and total failure on behalf of the people in the promised land. They would start turning away from God. They would find themselves oppressed by a foreign nation. They would find some of their land taken away that God had given them, and they would start crying out in agony, and God would see them, and he would have compassion on them, and he would have mercy for them. And so he would send a judge or a deliverer to come in and to rescue the people out, not just militarily, but also spiritually, and lead the people back to God. And so that happened once, and everything seemed like it was going good, and then guess what? The people failed again. And that same thing happened. They were oppressed by a foreign nation and God sent a judge. That happened seven different times in the life of the book of Judges. 
And we see as that book goes further and further, the people of God failing more and more and more until the last couple chapters of the book of Judges are some of the most disturbing in maybe all of Scripture as we see the moral and spiritual bottom fall out of the people of God until we get to that verse in Judges 21-25 saying that in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now the problem is there was a king in Israel. We talked about that last week with the covenant that when God took the people out of Egypt, God became their king and he gave them their law, that his law was a covenant with the people that gave them a new identity, but they no longer recognized the authority of God because they had gone so far away from him. And so we see this picture of complete and total failure. But surely after the book of Judges, After all that happens at the end of the book of Judges, maybe they see the error of their ways. They don't. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 4 through 9. It says, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old. That is a really unfortunate way to start a conversation with someone. They said, Behold, you are old. As if Samuel didn't know. You are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But this displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. Listen to this. God says, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them according to all their deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they're also doing to you. Now obey their voice, and only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. The people come to Samuel and they say, hey, we are tired of this system. We want a king just like everybody else. We want to be a nation just like everybody else. And so you give us a king. And Samuel comes to God and he says, what am I supposed to do with this? And God says, give them what they want. If that's what they want, if they don't think I'm the king that they want, then you give them the king that they want. Tell you what, I'll anoint this guy Saul. They'll like him. He's tall which is a thing I think that's important. He's tall. He's good looking. He looks like a king. He fits the part. They can have Saul. If they think somebody can take my place, then let them have the best possible candidate. That's fine. But you let them know that things are not going to go exactly like they think they are. And so Saul becomes king. And at first, things go really well. At first, Saul is a good king and he honors and he fears God. And, and the people of Israel see their kingdom begin to grow. But Saul starts to get a little arrogant and a little impatient, and he starts to do things his own way and neglect the calling and the commandments of God. And so while this is happening, God anoints another person king, a man named David. And this sends Saul into even more of a rage, and Saul becomes worse and worse and worse until finally, as things are really starting to fall apart for Saul, we see the end of Saul's reign as king in a really hard way. In 1 Samuel 31, 
He looks at his armor bearer. They're in the middle of a battle and they're losing this battle to the Philistines. And Saul looks at his armor bearer and he says, I'm going to need you just to kill me. (laughs) Because if they catch me, things are going to be really bad for me. And the armor bearer says, I can't do that. And Samuel 31 says that Saul took his own sword and he fell on it. And then his armor bearer saw that happen and the armor bearer did the same thing. And all three of Saul's sons were killed in battle. And the Philistine people came and they took his body, they cut off his head, they hung his body on the wall, and they celebrated his his death and their victory by putting him to shame. And when the people of Israel saw what happened, that their king had fallen, they ran away. And the Philistines came in and took some of those cities that God gave them, and they took them away from the people of Israel. But then comes David. And David ascends to become king, and David is a man after God's own heart. And things are going really well because David is a a faithful king to a faithful God, but then we find out that David also has some unfaithfulness. And David sees a woman named Bathsheba bathing on her roof, and he decides, you know what? I want her. It doesn't matter that she's married. It doesn't matter any of this. And David commits adultery with Bathsheba. And then in an effort to cover it up, puts her husband on the front lines of battle and has him killed. And that child of David's that was conceived of Bathsheba dies. But that's not the end of David's struggles with his children because one of his other sons, Absalom, decides that he wants to take over and he runs David out of his own kingdom for a while. And now remember At a later point in David's story, God is going to make a promise to David saying that one day one of your children is going to reign on this throne forever and he is going to be the king of all kings and his kingdom will never end. But right now in the midst of David's sin, he can't even get in his own house. He's running for his life from his own son because David, just like Saul before him, had failed. And it took an act of grace for God to restore David back to his proper place. And then comes David's son Solomon. And Solomon is very wise, and yet somehow at the same time, very dumb, and makes a lot of really terrible decisions. And he has all of these marriages and all these concubines from all these other places. And what happens with these marriages is Saul has about 300 and some odd wives. Every single marriage was not just, it's not romantic at this point, it's, it's contractual. And so when these marriages would take place, they were were contractual things between two nations, between two peoples, between two gods. And so as Solomon is allowing all this in, they're bringing with them their other gods. And and God had told them, be careful. These nations around you, they they worship and serve other gods, and they're going to lead you astray. And so be careful about how this works. But Solomon wasn't careful. And Solomon's legacy is not super great. Because yes, Solomon gets to build a temple for God and it's amazing and it's beautiful and it's the place where the people of God could go to worship. But after Solomon dies and his son takes over, there's a conflict and the kingdom breaks in two. There's a civil war, basically. And so now, God's people are divided in half. And then it starts this pattern where in Israel in the north and in Judah in the south, kings would come and kings would go, and some of them would do what was right in the eyes of God, and some of them would do what was evil in the eyes of God. But that started to become more of a pattern where these kings were just doing evil 
in the eyes of God, and they failed over and over and over again until finally Assyria came in from the north and Babylon from the south and took the people of God out of the land that God had given them, and they were slaves and captives and prisoners and exiles taken out of the place that God had given them. And sure, towards the end of the Old Testament, some of that gets put back together. They rebuild the temple and they rebuild the wall. But Israel is a shell of what it used to be. And by the end of the Old Testament, we see a bunch of people who felt like failures in a land that didn't feel so promising a long way from Eden. And the situation seemed dire and the situation seemed hopeless. And we basically see Israel at the end of the Old Testament as a picture of failure. But we learn a lot about God through this entire big story. Because we have to ask the question, well, what was God doing as the people were failing over and over again? And we see certain parts of Scripture where God gets angry. In the book of Judges, God would often, when the people would fall into these patterns of sin, he would do just like he did with Samuel and say, you know what, if that's what you want, fine. Here's what you're going to get. You can be treated just like everybody else. And because of that, I'm pretty angry with you. And God would send outside forces to come in and basically punish his people. We would see God burn with wrath all through the Old Testament when the people would turn away from him. We see times when God was disappointed. I think the tone of what God says to Samuel in 1 Samuel 8 is a tone of disappointment. He says, this is what they've been doing to me since I brought them out of Egypt. This is what they've been doing to me. Even though they've seen all of the good things that I've done for them, they continually turn their back on me. And we see a God who is disappointed in his people. Last week, we even saw a God who was sorry. When before the flood, he speaks and he says, I am sorry that I even created people to begin with. But we also see a God acting patiently and kindly and faithfully. In fact, in the book of Numbers, we see uh, this, this phrase that comes up that's used over and over again through basically every section of Scripture, making the declaration that God is slow to anger. And that he's abounding in steadfast love. And that he's merciful and kind and compassionate. And so we see oftentimes that God would allow his people to fail and allow his people to fall and then pick them up patiently and kindly and put them back where they needed to be. The Bible could have easily stopped at Genesis chapter 3. God could have looked at what happened in Genesis chapter 3 and said, you know what? We're going to try this again. And I'm going to wipe the slate clean. I'm going to start all over because you guys clearly can't handle what I've given you. But yet what we actually see is a God who is patient time and time again after his people fail and fall short. And that he still loves them. And then as we're going to talk about in a couple of weeks, we also see a God who is actively delivering his people from their own failure. But we also see that God was constantly working it all for his own glory and for the good of his people. That God was taking this failure and using it as a part of his big story to bring about something that would be a blessing to the entire world. And so when we look at the juxtaposition of the failure of the people and the, the resoluteness and faithfulness of God, we learn a lot about who God is 
as he reveals himself through this big story, even in the midst of failure. We learn that God is never changing. We learn that our failure does not change God's story. There is no point in the Old Testament where something happened and God says, Ooh, I don't know what I'm going to do with this. I don't know how I'm going to fix this. I don't know how I'm going to bring this back. There's never one point in the Old Testament where God breaks a sweat trying to figure out what he's going to do because we recognize that God has this plan and that there is no failure that's able to overtake God's faithfulness. There's no spectacular sin that's able to damage God's story because God knew what he was going to do and how he was going to do it before the foundations of the earth. And so everything that came, even the failures, God takes those things and weaves them back into the story and it works for his glory, but it also works for the good of his people. We learn that God is faithful and patient even when his people fail spectacularly. It can be very easy to look in the mirror at times and to think, I'm such a big failure. I'm such a big sinner. I'm so broken. There's no way God can love me. There's no way God can save me. And there's no way God can fix me. But I feel 100% confident when I say this, that if God can work through people like David and Saul and Abraham, then God certainly is not going to be thrown off by our weakness and our brokenness and our sin. And we can see as God's character is laid out in the Old Testament and certainly in the New, that God is patient with his people because he knows our limitations. He knows our brokenness. He knows our failures. And he's faithful in the midst of those failures. And he loves us in the midst of those failures. And he is patient with us in the midst of those failures. And so we can feel resolute and sure that there is no sin that could ever outweigh God's success. There's no failure that could ever take away God's victory. And there is no amount of wrong that we could do that could take away the love that God has for his children. But we also learn in this passage through the entire Old Testament that God has a plan to bring failure to an end. And Drew mentioned this exact phrase, which I'm a little jealous about because I was really excited about this, that God was going to bring about the man who knew no failure and then Drew just stole it and used it in the confession of sin. It was beautiful and I'm really upset about that too because it was really good when he did it and at least he could have stumbled through it, but it was great. But that's the plan that God had. Then in this long line of failures, in this long line of sinners, in this long line of broken people, God had a plan that in the fullness of time, he would bring forth not just a normal man, but that he would bring forth his son, born of a woman, born under the same law that all these people were born under, given the same temptations that every person has ever had to bear, and yet he would be able to live his life without sin, without shame, without failure, or without brokenness, and that that man, that Jesus Christ, would one day step into our place. And as he stretched out his arms on the cross, he would offer us a place to take all of our failures and put it on him. And then in that exchange, he would take our failures and he would give us his victory. He said, come to me because my my yoke is light. My burden doesn't weigh very much. You take mine and I'll take yours. The Bible says that anybody who trusts in that man with no failure for salvation is able to stand in front of God as people who are victorious and clean. 
But it doesn't just stop with the cross and the resurrection 2,000 years ago. Because the Bible tells us, and as our confession, of, our confession of faith over the past several weeks has told us, we have a hope that one day God will finish what he started. And the Jesus who took our spiritual failures on the cross will one day take our physical brokenness and failure and he'll wipe those away. And we'll walk into a new promised land. But that promised land will have no record of our wrongs and no possibility for failure. And we will be with God once and for all as his children, perfect and blameless and spotless in his presence for all time. And so all of these failures through the Old Testament, all the failures in the New Testament, all the failures for the last 2,000 years of Christianity and all the failures that live in each and every one of our lives are reminders that there is something that is wrong and something that's broken, not just in our world, but inside of us. But they're also reminders that God has a plan and that God has never failed. And he's not going to fail with this plan either. And so one day, for any of us who trust in Christ for salvation... He'll take those failures away once and for all, and we will walk in light and free into God's promised land and never fail again. But until then, we have a God who is faithful. We have a God who is patient. We have a God who will correct us when we fall, but also pick us up and put us back on the path and love us anyway. And so that should give us the freedom to trust in the calling of the creative God who has made a covenant with his people to know that we can do all that we can to love and to serve him and that even when we fail, he works all things to the good of those who love him. He works all things to his glory and he is working in and through us to bring about the end of this story where everything will be made right and everything will be made new.